This episode of Bag of Bones is sponsored by Fresh Start Lifestyles and the Etowah River Campground in Dahlonega, Georgia. Hello everyone, welcome to Bag of Bones. I'm Elizabeth Bougere and today, let's talk hooch. White Lightning, Rot Gut, Alley Bourbon, Block and Tackle, Buckeye Bark Whiskey, White Dog, Mountain Water, Bush Whiskey, Cat Daddy, Hillbilly Pop, Panther's Breath, Pine Top, Pop Skull, Red Eye, Ruckus Juice, Firewater, Skull Cracker, Stump, Sugar Whiskey, Hair of the Dog, or Sweet Spirits, a Cat's a Fightin'. Whatever you want to call it, today we're talking about moonshine. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougere, and I'm that person when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found in my bag of bones. Moonshine, for today's episode, refers to the illegal production of distilled liquor or other alcoholic products outside of the FDA guidelines, which basically means there was no one around to say just how strong the alcohol could be. Some have been known to get to 190 proof. For comparison, your average bottle of wine or beer is anywhere from 5% to 17% alcohol. Another way to look at it, in the United States right now, a standard drink is any beverage that contains 0.6 ounces or 14 grams of alcohol, which breaks down to one 12-ounce beer, which is around 5% alcohol, 8 ounces of malt liquor, which is around 7%, a glass of 5 ounces of wine, which is around 12% on average, and only 1.5 ounce shot of distilled spirits, like rum, gin, vodka, tequila, and whiskey. That breaks down to about 40% alcohol. Under FDA rules, of course. But back in the day, there was no FDA, and as you'll soon see, most moonshiners we're discussing today took pride in their product and took the time and tested and tested and tested how these good old boys were devoted to their work to make sure their product was as good as it could get. But there were some who used less than wholesome ingredients and there was no quality control to make sure they didn't use old tennis shoes or eye of newt or whatever. But like I said, most created and perfected recipes that were handed down through the generations that were prized and valued and top secret. Moonshine got its name from when the business of distilling homemade whiskey had to go underground. Well, not literally, but it had to disappear. So they quickly shifted to producing their merch after dark, when the moon was high. The entire production of building the stills, gathering the ingredients, The hours and hours of processing, the bottling, and distribution all had to be done in secret, usually late at night. And because they had to be near water to boil it up and cool it down, they became very selective to their locations of operation. 
When I was hiking in the mountains of Dahlonega, Georgia, I was taken to an old, old abandoned still hidden alongside an ice-cold stream. The copper pieces had all been taken away, but the cooking stove that had been built from rock and pieces of hand-hammered iron were still there. The moonshiners rose to outlaw glory just prior to and especially through prohibition. But these days, there are legal distilleries appearing across the country. I know, it kind of takes the fun out of it, right? Moonshine is moving the way of craft beer, putting a bit of glamour and gloss to it, which I'm sure the old-timers would grumble at, but couldn't help but be a little proud. But they are thriving within the limits of the law, with standardized regulations and new flavors and ingredients the old-timers might have never thought of. And they'd probably be rolling their eyes right about now over the whole mess. Moonshine is here to stay, and you don't have to wait until the sun goes down to purchase your merch. But as always, here on Bag of Bones, let's turn back the time before you could pick up a bottle of White Lightning down at the local Sam's Club. But first, let's hear what our sponsors have to say. Freight brokers play an instrumental role in the shipping industry. They ensure that a variety of goods move across the U.S. from one location to another without complication. Demand for freight brokers continues to increase as the industry evolves. Starting a freight brokerage business or maintaining a current one appears to have a positive job outlook for this career. If you've been wanting to break into or excel in the freight broker industry, Fresh Start Lifestyles has the answer. Call Amanda or Amber to find out how the complete Fresh Start Freight Broker course with certificate can get you started in a new career. Call Fresh Start Lifestyles for more information at 833-373-7475. That's 833-373-7475. There has always been alcohol in this new nation since its very, very beginnings. In fact, there was ale and even wine that came over on the Mayflower, and it was included with every supply delivery until they had the means to produce the beverages themselves, which actually began with some wild hops they found growing nearby. And as the cultures began to blend, more options became available. The French and Spanish brought new wine, The German introduced a lighter lager, the Dutch brought us beer, the Scotch and Irish get the credit for introducing distilled liquor. In fact, some of the prioritized crops that were first planted were to include apple orchards, grape vineyards, wheat, and hops. Sure, the wheat is a multi-use grain, but make no mistake, the ingredients for ale were a top priority. The first brewery was actually built in Massachusetts Bay Colony by Captain Sedwick in 1637. Alcohol in America was good. It was an important part of business and social encounters and also in daily life. It was viewed as a gift from the Almighty that could, quote, relieve sorrow, give courage to the soldier, endurance to the traveler, foresight to the statesman, an inspiration to the preacher, end quote. In a time when the water in the area could be questionable and more than once a drink from the wrong water source could lead to death, the colonials preferred to bet on a sure thing. 
Drinking water was actually rare at the time, and if you were to offer your guest a glass of water, it was considered bad social taste. It was a social mar for a home to be without some kind of alcoholic beverage to offer their guests. Better to be caught without bread than to be without a bottle. Turning down a drink that was offered was the next social offense. The tavern, also known as the Ordinary, was one of the first established businesses. This was more than a place for social gathering and drinking. While the first settlements were just getting started, the tavern served as an open house for town meetings, rest for weary travelers, dances, a place to stay until housing was located or built, a warm meal, even the church sought out to use the ordinary. If you were to look at the early layouts of towns, you'll see that the churches were in close proximity to taverns. This wasn't to scoop up the sinners as they stumbled from the tavern doors, but it was so their parishioners would have a place to replenish oneself between prayer meetings. The use of distilled spirits was discouraged, and attentions were turned more toward hard cider, beer, and wines. Beer, in some form, was the most common beverage. It was to accompany every meal, and other drinks were added along the menu. Breakfast, for example, would serve beer, but mulled cider for the children, or watered-down wine if you were from a more affluent family. Lunch followed the same, but the evening meal, or meals, depending on your social standing, had several options of alcohol to be ingested. You were giving a spirit prior to eating, usually a wine or brandy, then another for each course of the meal and following. You received another to settle your stomach. If you were at a gathering, you would have punch and a few more other rounds to survive. Up, I mean, imbibe. The first documented example of distilling grains into alcohol with a much higher alcohol content was in 1640. It was first introduced as brandy. Made from distilled fruits and sugars, it pushed the alcohol content higher than from formerly used grains. Rum was, for the most part, still being traded from the West Indies until molasses was brought to the colonies and they figured out how to make their own. Rum became the new go-to beverage for some time and was the base for some of the most popular drinks. The flip, blackstrap, grog, and the sling were most common. And back then, late 1700s, if you were offered punch, and every gathering did, it wasn't the kind you'd find at a children's birthday party. It was served, as today, in large glass bowls, but with matching small glasses that looked like tiny coffee cups and it had quite the kick. It was most often a mixture of rum, tea, sugar, lemon, and water. Not sure when they started putting the ice cream in and took the rum out, but I can imagine it made for quite the party. Eventually, the distilled drinks started to catch on. They figured out that this oftentimes tasteless liquid could be mixed with a variety of other ingredients and a number of beverages could be created. Thus, the invention of the cocktail was born. Skilled mix masters of the early 1800s would mix the liquor with sugars, juices, bitters, and a variety of spices and created a new fashion for drinking. 
Distilling grains into alcohol was a game-changer for America. Distilleries eventually dominated over breweries and wineries. It was inexpensive, easy to transport since it didn't have to be chilled, and could last, well, forever. It had a quick turnaround compared to wine, beer, and rum, which had to age, and its ability to be disguised and transformed into any type of drink pole vaulted it into the most popular drink available. And if you think that it was the price of tea that set the Americas on the warpath, here's some of what the historians believe was the actual cause. It was the threat of interruption of their alcohol. So remember, this wasn't just a drink to be enjoyed while relaxing or at the sporting events. This is what everyone drank, every day, men, women, and children. It was safer than water, and it was more reliable than milk. It was not considered a luxury. It was a staple. Yes, tea was as well, but mm, alcohol. The Molasses Act of 1733, the New Molasses Act of 1763, and the Sugar Act of 1764? <laughs> King George III was messing with their liquor production. And where were these meetings held so that people could discuss their discontentment? The ordinary. The seat of heated discussions of rebellion against the crown were all happening in the colonial taverns, probably right around the time when supplies were getting low. So here we are, on the verge of the Revolutionary War. England has stopped all trading ships and the colonists turn inward to keep the balance. Many new breweries and distilleries popped up, and since there was no more competition with foreign suppliers for alcohol, it became a very profitable trade. The soldiers expected that some of their wages would be paid in liquor. It's written that a soldier's rations included, quote, one-fourth to one-half pint of whiskey a day, end quote, to make up the soldier's grog ration which was the drink that was made from half whiskey and half water or tea. Alcohol was also used to boost the soldiers' morale. George Washington, who says he was not a fan of using strong spirits in general, noted, quote, The benefits arising from the moderate use of strong liquor have been experienced by all armies and are not to be disputed, end quote. It should also be noted that even though Washington may have not been a huge advocate, his own personal distillery on Mount Vernon jumped from 600 gallons annually in 1797 to 11,000 gallons by 1799. But after the war and America was on its own, the new Continental Congress had to find a way to pay for the expensive war and they went after the most valuable commodity they had, the whiskey. Poor George Washington, barely a president of a brand new shiny nation, and the whole thing gets turned on its ear with this new tax. The people of the nation weren't going to have it. I guess they decided that if rebellion worked before, it should work for everything. So, when the new tax collectors started coming around to the distilleries and taverns, they were attacked tarred and feathered, their homes were set on fire, and personal belongings smashed and strewn about on the streets. The rioting had only just begun. 
for it being Pennsylvania in 1794, and the public protests included more than 6,000 angry people. This became known in our American history as the Whiskey Rebellion. Old George himself rode in front of a militia of 13,000 to lay down the law. For anyone who failed to comply with the new government's will and authority, they would be arrested. End of story. This is when the distilleries began to disappear from the mainstream. In order to avoid paying the stiff taxes, they retreated from sight, becoming the first generation of moonshiners. The making of the liquor wasn't an issue. It was the taxation of it. The people were allowed to make it, drink it, share it, trade with it, but not sell it. Once cash exchanged hands, the government wanted their fair share. I guess the taxes didn't really affect George because his distillery was so large, but from the research I discovered, the tax was pretty steep, and for the smaller farmer, it could make or break them. The problem with this new tax was that many of these moonshiners were also farmers, and the whiskey sales helped them to earn the money to balance out their income for times when crops were damaged or the prices were low. Many depended on that income, and it was thought to be an unjust tax. The view of alcohol and its production suddenly started to split. Many saw the moonshiners as heroes standing up to an oppressive government. Others saw the effects of alcohol, especially these strong spirits, beginning the slippery slope into criminal debauchery and sin. You've all survived history class. My history education was all about cramming dates and names and battles into my teenage brain in order to pass the newest test to make the school look good. I didn't really enjoy history until I was able to revisit it and see that history was made up of people just like me. They had struggles, they had joy, they had sadness, and they felt victories. It became so very real to me. And now, I'm on a mission to revisit as much history as I can. Hello, my name's Elizabeth Bougere. I'm a full-time author and a full-time traveler, and I would love to share what I'm learning with you. Come with me. See my sights and stories as I go. I love history now. Real history. Not just the dates and battles. And I've discovered that others do too. So, I've created a group in Facebook, and I'd love for you to join me on my travels and adventures. Let me reintroduce you to a history that's made up of people, places, adventures. I'll even throw in a few battles for good measure. If you love American history with a side of travel, I'm sure you'll enjoy this group. Join me over there. Search the Facebook groups for History Revisited, I'm the one with the blue feather, or Type in historyrevisited.info in the search bar and then join in on the adventure. And so I can be sure to welcome you properly, be sure to say hello. In 1801, Thomas Jefferson repealed the tax, but the distilleries kept their production hidden away in the mountains. Alcohol never really left 
but with this repeal in taxes, Americans could enjoy the beverages more freely once again. In fact, in many cities, workers would take grog breaks when the bells would toll at 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. The workers could stop and have grog time. In 1814, the taxes went back into place to help pay for the War of 1812. In 1826, the American Temperance Society was formed, and using the essays from one of the founding fathers, Benjamin Rush, as their base, they preached that a heavy alcohol consumption could damage the physical and psychological health, not to mention what it was doing for the soul. This opened the door for others to join the temperance movement as well. Churches, organizations, the women's movement. The clergy began to adjust their sermons warning against the evils of distilled spirits. And for a moment, the consumption of white lightning declined by 17%. And yet, in the 1830s, it is documented that alcohol consumption was at its peak with Americans consuming seven gallons of pure alcohol each year. That's three times the level consumed in present day and remains the highest measured volume in U.S. history. Seven gallons per person roughly translates to 90 bottles touting 80 proof distilled spirits. On average. But along came the Civil War, and the people's focus changed as the nation divided on other topics, and the issues of a nation took on a different precedent. Not to mention, the soldiers would need their morale once again. This created over 1,100 legal distilleries producing more than 88 millions of gallons each year were operating in the U.S. just prior to the Civil War. At the onset of the Civil War, in 1862, a reinstatement of the taxes on whiskey and tobacco came back into play to raise money for the troops, and the government kept it in place to help recovery efforts following the war as well. Soon, they started noticing that people were still getting their whiskey, but the tax funds weren't getting any fatter. Thus, the new feud of tax collectors and moonshiners kicked in. A special department was created within the government to task a group of people to take charge of the problem. Both sides took their job seriously. In 1869, the Prohibition Party was formed. Whispers of change were in the making. Following the end of the Civil War, and while the country attempted to heal, the temperance movement decided to turn up the heat. The nation was stretching at the seams for change. Women's rights, abolition, temperance, tobacco restriction, and other reforms grew and spread their wings during this time. By the 1900s, there was an estimated 300,000 saloons catering to the only 76 million Americans. At one time, there were more saloons than schools, churches, and libraries. <laughs> Probably put together. Even though the movement began quietly, in the early 1800s, it grew louder and louder until 1851, Maine became the first state to prohibit the manufacture and sale of liquor. And by 1919, legislation had been passed to institute a nationwide prohibition. It was now illegal to produce and sell moonshine. 
the 18th Amendment to the United States Constitution went into effect in full force in 1920. The amendment prohibited the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors. And then later that year, despite President Wilson's veto, the Volstead Act expanded on the 18th by going into more detail of the strength of alcohol, increased punishment for lawbreakers, and exceptions that will be accepted such as medicinal, religious rituals, and scientific research. Incidentally, the need for medicinal spirits rose 80%, and doctors are have said to have netted almost $40 million by writing prescriptions for medicinal whiskey. And just to be clear, neither the 18th Amendment nor the Volstead Act made it illegal to consume the liquor. They just made it really difficult to acquire. Just because the government made liquid illegal did not mean the public did not crave it anymore. But on January 28, 1920, Americans partook of their last legal drink for the next 13 years. The moonshiners have been preparing for this moment their whole lives. The Tasting Tables website says, quote, Moonshine purists define the spirit as a homemade, unaged whiskey marked by its clear color, corn base, and high alcohol content, sometimes peaking as high as 190 proof. Traditionally, it was produced in a homemade still and bottled in a mason jar. Like I mentioned before, they took pride in their product. They were known among their community, and they knew that if they delivered a poor product, they would lose customers and a valuable income. And there was that sense of honor. But with the onset of prohibition, distilleries came out of the woodwork and were popping up everywhere. The amount of rum entering the country from the Caribbean greatly increased and caused enforcement agents to try and shut down the illegal stills and rum runners, proving the task to be next to impossible. Instead of prohibition erasing crime and minimizing alcohol and tobacco consumption, the exact opposite occurred. Crime became profitable and corruption became the new law. The demand was so great for moonshine as the saloons and speakeasies grew, the new vogue was being an outlaw. The bartenders and customers weren't really too concerned about where it came from. Bartenders would try to disguise the rough, harsh taste with sugars and other flavors creating cocktails that can still be ordered today. But the liquid was sometimes deadly as people scrambled to quench their thirst of a nation that was told that they couldn't have it anymore. Moonshine whiskey started to get a bad name. They still drank it, but, as usual, leave it to the few bad apples that spoil the whole bunch. With this poor reputation for distilled liquor, it has been hard to shake, and even years after Prohibition, the mountain distilleries had to stay hidden and remain an outlaw operation. There were no standards, no FDA ratings. They could literally put anything they wanted into the mash to create a moonshine liquor. To speed up the whiskey production, some attempted to run the distilling process through the radiator of a car. This process does not allow for the regulation of methanol, which if consumed, and it was, caused the blood to become acidic, which in turn causes blindness. So, as the joke goes, you could go blind from drinking hooch. It is A, not that funny, 
and B, <laughs> actually quite true. The truth is, the making of the authentic moonshine is a work of art. There is a finesse to it, and it's more than just the recipes. It's a timing thing. You have to know how to let it boil up, when to cool down the coils in the mash, when to allow the alcohol to build up, and when it's clear liquid is ready for jars or jugs. The more folks I've talked to about this topic, it does seem that the majority of the moonshiners were just good old boys. They didn't get their feathers ruffled. They were never in a hurry. Now, if someone came up to them that didn't belong, they were quick to greet them at the end of a shotgun, but they didn't use it if they didn't need to, and they sure didn't want to. Hey, the gangster life chose them. They didn't choose the gangster life. But making, sipping, and sharing moonshine was all they really wanted to do. And that's really all they had to do because there were others to pick up where they left off. This really is the era of gangsters. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Isle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com slash merch now to check things out. Organized crime flourished, delighted with the opportunity to supply the masses with illegal alcohol and could easily pay off enforcers and put the people in their own system to places of power. Enforcement was extremely difficult. The public had been used to drinking legally and thought the new laws unnecessary and inconvenient, and most decided not to participate. If they were the right person or made the right amount of money, the law would look the other way. There was just no consistency. The Coast Guard had their hands full trying to contain illegal shipments coming by sea. The huge ships that would be carrying cases of rum from the Caribbean would anchor offshore while smaller boats would race out to meet them, unload the contraband, and sail back to shore before the mother boats would sail into port where their contents would be inspected. These records for Nassau, Bahamas will give you some idea. In 1917, when liquor passed through the Bahamas on its way to the United States, it was documented at 50,000 quarts. It skyrocketed in 1922 at over 10 million quarts. Nothing illegal happening here. Move along. Another example could have been a 25-foot boat that was anchored just 15 feet from the shore that could be easily turned into a speakeasy. Customers would reach the party by a gangplank, and if anyone caught wind of a raid or heard the law coming, they could simply pull up anchor and relocate. When you have the organized crime undermining the legal process, trying to uphold the law around every corner, and then you have people who didn't believe in and value the new laws, the opposition for prohibition was underestimated and it was terribly difficult to combat the backlash. The moonshine industry was making a killing, and no one cared to stop it. Speakeasies were the places to be, and the people weren't afraid to defy the law. One federal agent told a reporter in 1928, quote, If there were an arrest every hour in the day and night, and 24 places were closed that day, 24 new places would open on the morrow, end quote. Basically, the whole thing backfired. Women who at one time were not allowed in saloons were welcome in speakeasies. They could order their own drinks. 
the black and white segregation lines blurred and speakeasies became a safe place where both cultures danced, socialized, and blended their styles of music that became jazz. The Roaring Twenties created a new kind of American. And where there are moonshiners, the bootleggers weren't too far off. One needed the other to survive the prohibition. Gangs who had success in gambling and thieving recognized the new opportunity and quickly formed new organizations of bootleggers. The moonshiners needed to get their product to the speakeasies. The bootleggers created fast and furious ways to make that happen. In 1908, the Model T, one of the first cars accessible to the masses created by the Ford Motor Company, gave bootlegging the jump it needed. Bootleggers had to get creative because, with all things created equal, the whiskey runners were not able to outrun the enforcers. They began modifying their cars to be able to run better and faster down the back roads. They soon beefed up the motors and raised up the suspensions to get them through the tight spots and fast enough to outrun the law. One runner, famed Junior Johnson, claimed that he put a brake handle on just one tire, allowing him to make tight turns or spin right back around and zip past the law that was chasing him. Some even go so far as to say that the heavy muscle cars that we have today, like the Charger, the Mustang, and the Camaros, were crafted, refined, and beefed up because of these drivers and their need for speed and tight handling. They had to get creative and find ways to hide the bottles, jugs, or boxes of bottles in every space possible. The bottles were heavy and fragile so great care had to be taken to make sure the product reached its destination in one piece. Some smugglers would brag that they could run their entire route in the dark without headlights reaching speeds of above 100 miles per hour. The bootleggers and the gangs controlled the territories. They made their fortunes running back and forth making deliveries, sometimes four trips per night. One source offered that the average pay for bootlegging was $50 per 300 gallons in 5-gallon jugs. That was a lot of cabbage back then. And once you get that thrill of adrenaline, it's hard to let it go. So, they found other outlets. Runners, in their spare time, turned to racing. They would race their stock cars on makeshift dirt tracks that would eventually evolve into the National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing. That's right, NASCAR. In 1936, Daytona, Florida, hosted a race, a stock car race. The event itself didn't do very well, but at the time, a young Bill France entered that race, and he came in fifth. He was so enamored with the sport that it became his life's passion. The very first NASCAR race was held in Daytona, Florida, a little more than ten years later, and it was funded with moonshiner money. The winner of the race of 1948 was Red Byron, a moonshine runner. The very job of the bootlegger was to take their prized cargo hidden in various places like the back seat, under the floorboards, and in the place of a passenger seat. They would run along those tight single-lane dirt or gravel roads, hopefully unseen, but should the chase be on, they had to know how to maneuver their vehicles along the sharp turns and curvy roads over the mountains and through the woods. They were teaching themselves to become stock car racers. 
The love of the stock cars has turned into the muscle cars we recognize, and they have stayed popular as new mechanics are invented to make them go faster and further than the last year's model. A new generation of muscle cars emerges every year. The body might change shape and the motor might be upgraded, but it's still keeping the same heartbeat of the original bootleggers and rum runners back in the day. The same president that pulled the country out of the Great Depression that happened in 1929 was also the one who released the nation of prohibition. In 1933, December 5th as a matter of fact, the 21st Amendment officially repealed the 18th. The repeal of the 18th Amendment by the 21st Amendment was the first and only time the Constitution was amended by the state constitutional conventions, and the only time an amendment abolished a previous one. The Washington Post reported, quote, Impatient customers beat a joyous refrain on glassware and tabletops and sent up cheers as the first cork popped and the first waiter rushed to fill orders given in advance, end quote. In 1935, Alcoholics Anonymous was formed to help those who didn't fare well through the Roaring Twenties. And in 1939, the textbook outlining their 12-step program was released, and the study work done by the two first recovering alcoholics, a stockbroker Bill and surgeon Dr. Bob, still serves and helps the people today. In 2005, the first legal moonshine distillery opens in North Carolina. And today, distilleries are still having to fight through bygone laws and heavy, heavy taxation in order to offer their products to the public. And one final story, if you're not bent, three sheets to the wind, canned, fried, plastered, blotto, boiled as an owl, zazzled, spifflicated, or just plain drunk, I'd like to introduce you to the man in the green hat. Hello listeners, we are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt, and we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. So what do you do when your entire country has made your favorite pastime illegal? Well, I'll tell you. You hire the best bootlegger there is and set him up with his own office, right there on Capitol Hill. George L. Cassidy was just such a man. He was the man. Only recognized by his emerald green hat, he was able to walk through the Capitol making about 25 deliveries a day to members of the Congress who needed a sip of something strong during the Prohibition. Once the news of his services caught on, he mentioned that he stayed busy, quote, hustling from the time offices opened at 9 o'clock in the morning until well along in the evening, end quote. The Capitol Police knew who he was and they were instructed to look the other way. George delivered moonshine, scotch, bourbon, and gin from a leather duffel bag to specific members, and yes, he had a list. Every day he would bring in two suitcases that would hold 35 to 40 quarts of liquor that he brought to work on the train. He would set up in his office, draw the blinds, and then be open for business. 
1925, he was arrested trying to slip six quarts of whiskey to one of his loyal patrons. He confessed that nearly every day that Congress was in session, he had plenty of customers and usually no trouble. Cassidy pled guilty to possession and his punishment was that he was banned from house premises. But he did not have to give up his business, however, because he quickly found revenue on the other side of the aisle. From 1925 to 1930, he ran his bootlegging operation from the Senate office building. He would later comment on his experience working with both sides of Congress, and he told the Washington Post, quote, In the House, I dealt directly with most of my customers, but most of the senators would order liquor through their secretaries, end quote. In 1929, Cassidy's home was raided, where they discovered and seized 266 quarts of premium liquor. From that point on, Vice President Charles Curtis put Cassidy on watch. Undercover agent Roger Butts, who became known as the Dry Spy, was commissioned to watch Cassidy's movements and report back so a sting operation could be authorized. February 18, 1930, Butts organized to have a Senate employee arrange a drop-off in the senator's parking lot. Prohibition agents caught Cassidy with six bottles of gin. They also confiscated his client list. Senators demanded that the list become public just to prove that their names were not on it. It never did get released. George L. Cassidy was sentenced to 18 months in prison, but got so much publicity that he even received his own bylined series of articles on the front page of the Washington Post. By 1933, Prohibition was over and no one was interested in his stories, but he did find a valuable position with the CIA. However, even though Cassidy never betrayed any names, he would say that he helped 80% of the lawmakers of America break the law. He added, quote, you find more general spirit of good fellowship and conviviality in the house, end quote. In the 1970s, he was memorialized with a California-style restaurant on the Senate side of Capitol Hill called The Man with the Green Hat. Thank you for joining me today for this week's episode of Bag of Bones, and thanks to this week's sponsors, Fresh Start Lifestyles and the Etowah River Campground in Dahlonega, Georgia. You can find their contact information in the show notes, and if you choose to partake in their services, be sure to tell them Elizabeth sent you. If you wouldn't mind to leave a 5-star rating and review on Apple, I would be most grateful. And if you're hanging out on the social, stop by the Bag of Bones podcast page on Facebook to say hello. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.